0: spent the last several hours, should should be going, the last several hours uh, writing this talk for you this evening, so um, I've been on many, many retreats, and I know that um, many of you might be sitting with the attitude of, boy, this guy better have something good to say.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're right
0: in the middle, I think, oftentimes. Day one, I feel like it's this very interesting place where you've been planning on coming retreat and thinking on coming on retreat and all of the aggravation and disappointment of the world you're not going to have to deal with. And you come out to this idyllic place and it's beautiful. And then you're just like, this is kind of hard. <laughs> and then it's like, well, what do you do now? It's like both the world and all of uh, its, you know, conditions have been difficult and coming here and sitting quietly with yourself is also very difficult. Uh, I sometimes find myself wandering around the property looking for something to do. So, okay. <laughs> okay. Just starting. Like detox, this is like detox from the world day. Um, so tonight uh, the talk is um, titled uh, "Awakening through Awakening Compassion Through the Wisdom of Dissatisfaction, which is also the theme of the retreat. How do we awaken uh, compassion? Compassion a nice word. Most
1: people value that
0: word and think that it's important to be compassionate and Would think of it as something that's a beautiful quality but it's you know when you look inside yourself it's where's the switch for that one it's not so easy to do I think it's probably for me I think it's one of the most advanced skills that that human beings uh, can develop and the irony or perhaps the paradox I find in, in Dharma practice is that what awakens that oftentimes is for us becoming very honest and very uh, real with the fact uh, that there's been some dissatisfaction. There's been some pain, there's been some loss, there's been some disappointment that this has not been easy. You can't really have one without the other. So when we look at the two sides of the coins of practice, we look at A, wisdom, recognizing that things are dissatisfying and Recognizing that life is hard. It's not that difficult to recognize that life is hard. Although it's important to be able to do that. It's much more challenging to recognize that life is hard and then create a way of life that's rooted in compassion. That understands if life is hard for me, it's hard for everybody. And compassion is uh, the best strategy to work with that reality. And then we, we have this, this, this Dharma dance of developing both qualities that we need, to, we need to understand the limitations of our humanity and we also need to care about the struggle. Uh, and these, these two, you know, it's kind of like if you walk the path, it's kind of the left foot and the right foot. You know, it's like that's what keeps us going. And it's really hard if you're just hopping on one foot, which many people do. I'm just going to hop on the wisdom foot. I've met very few people who decided to hop on the compassion foot. That's the harder foot to hop on, I think. So I want to read something that comes from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, It's the beginning of his, uh, one of my favorite Dharma books, The Eightfold Path, by Bhikkhu Bodhi. He starts off and he says, "The The way to the end of suffering. A very hot topic. I want to do that. And he kind of does his Bhikkhu Bodhi thing, which is really giving us a beautiful framework. Cheryl talked about today that, frames of references. And having a good frame for things is really quite helpful. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says here, The search for a spiritual path is born out of suffering. It does not start with lights and ecstasy, but with the hard tacks of pain, disappointment, and confusion. However, for suffering to give birth to a genuine spiritual search it must amount to more than something passively received from without. It has to trigger an inner realization, a perception which pierces through the facile complacency of our usual encounter with the world to glimpse the insecurity perpetually gaping underfoot. When this insight dawns, even if only only momentarily, it can precipitate a profound personal crisis. It overturns accustomed goals and values, mocks our routine preoccupations, and leaves old enjoyments stubbornly unsatisfying. At first glance, such changes are generally not welcome. We are trying to deny our vision and to smother our doubts we struggle to drive away the discontent with new pursuits. But the flame of inquiry, once lit, continues to burn. And if we do not let ourselves be swept away by superficial readjustments or slouch back into a patched up version of our natural optimism, eventually the original glimmering of insight will again flare up, again confronts us with our essential plight. It is precisely at this point with all escape routes blocked, that we are ready to seek a way to bring our disquietude to an end. No longer can we continue to drift complacently through life, driven blindly by our hunger for sense pleasures and our fear of pain, and by the pressures of prevailing social norms. A deeper reality beckons us. We have heard the call of a more stable, more authentic happiness. And until we arrive at our destination, we cannot rest content. But it is just then and just now that we find ourselves. Very articulate, Bhikkhu Bodhi, I believe. And I think he really is, for me, pointing almost to the exact moment in which you sit Reflecting on some of these ideas and seeing, oh yeah, this is, once that flame of inquiry is lit, it doesn't die easily. And so we find ourselves sitting here looking for a different way to go about things. But then I often ask the question in in Buddhist practice and Dharma practice, why does it always have to come down to suffering? (laughs) You know, why does it always have to come down to that? I know for me that has historically been 100% true. Um, It's not the gains and the joys and the pleasures of life that drive me to log cabins miles and miles away from civilization. Those are not the experiences that precipitate these events. Um, But I think it's very simple. The practice continues to shine a light on all of the ways in which we are unliberated. That's what the practice does. It continues to shine a light on all of the ways and all of the areas in which we are unliberated. And therein lies the wisdom of dissatisfaction. It's being able to see if you can't see the ways in which you're unliberated, you will never be liberated. You'll just fall back asleep into the, the world and hope that it just works out. Just, I just got to get it together out there. I just got to get the right job and the right money and the right... If I could just get the right thing, I'd be happy. And then you go back and put your cards on that table only to realize that the house actually does always win. And I, you know, this is a game that I play constantly. I'm not a gambling man by nature, but why I continue to put my cards back on the table of the world is really going to provide me with eternal happiness. I'm... That's why I go see a $200 an hour therapist twice a month just to try to sort that one out because I have no
1: idea why I do that.
0: And again, when we start to see that practice does this, it shines a light that they're in this kind of wisdom of the satisfaction. One of One of two things can happen. One, on one hand, we can become very encouraged and very inspired and very motivated to say, okay, well, if this is the challenge, uh, if this is the issue at hand, I'm, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Or uh, you can become overwhelmed or depressed or cynical or just think like, Ugh. So again, it's, it, 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 we, as we will teach constantly throughout the week, it's in the attitude of our experience that dictates which way we go in that regard. Do I feel overwhelmed? Do I feel like the world is collapsing in on me and around me? Or am I up for the challenge? And you'll find at various times and various circumstances, you'll probably go back and forth between those two. And this is why recognizing the, the fact that life is difficult, that life is hard... Um, that that reminder, you don't usually have to remember that one. Usually life will point that out for you. Um, which actually I kind of appreciate to some degree. It's constantly... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And this has been the, the, the common thread and theme for me for the last 22 years, is that... Um, you can't have the end of suffering without the suffering. It would be nice if that were the case, but that's not how it works. And it's these types of experiences that have been the prompting for, for my practice and getting me uh, sitting when I was 19 years old. It was suffering that got me in the door. Um, and when I left the building, it was suffering that got me back into the room over and over and over again. And so again, we oftentimes, you know, it's very difficult to not view the word suffering or difficulty or life is hard in a derogatory way. The Buddha summed this up in one word, and he said that life is dukkha, that there is dukkha in life. Um, the first noble truth. That life is hard, life is difficult. But the interesting thing that I've noticed lately in my study is that the Buddha doesn't speak in any derogatory way of dukkha. He just says that it's there. It's actually us, and I think Western psychological conditioning that has sort of deemed Dukkha a bad term or a negative view. But I don't believe the Buddha holds it that way. He just says, yeah, this is how it is. And even looking at it through the lens of it being bad or wrong or painful or difficult, you're just encouraging that attitude to begin with. And so that can either prompt us into the experience of being depressed, or upset, or withdrawn, or again, it can allow us to arrive and to arise uh, into an experience of, I'm up for the challenge. And that's really where we begin to take refuge, as we talked about yesterday. I'm, I'm, I, I'm up for the challenge, and I believe that I have the potential to, to do this thing. And you're probably, I would imagine, to some degree, sitting in that kind of space right about now. Uh, Do you feel up for the challenge or uh, do you feel a little overwhelmed or perhaps a mixed bag of the two? And so, you know, I think that what the Buddha found out when he awoke, this term awakening gets, I think, more privilege than it needs. Um, He seemed to come to the reality that, uh, basically, that people, himself included, tended to suffer in very unnecessary ways. Do you find that you suffer in unnecessary ways? And this was his interest. This was his spark of curiosity. He wasn't interested in traveling to other realms and breaking you know, into this sort of Buddhist heaven enlightenment term that it has been turned into over the years. I believe he was very interested in his own humanity and saw, in a very real way in his own mind and body that he experienced a lot of suffering that was extremely unnecessary and maybe even avoidable. And then it's told that he awoke to this dharma. Through his own practice, through his own mindfulness practice. He developed a system of mental training, which is what we're doing here. You guys are in training. I feel like we're practicing, but you're really more in, this is more training than practicing, I think. You guys are really, really uh, doing what most people on this planet will never even attempt. And he developed this system of training where we could begin to observe the mind with the mind and start to recognize and see clearly for ourselves the ways that we create suffering for ourselves. And that we can have these radical interventions on that. You have the ability, you have agency, you have the potential to to intervene on the suffering process. And essentially that's what... The whole of the Dharma was established to do for us, was to give us a mode of operating. The Buddha just sat quietly and observed his own experience with such skill and with such precision that he realized that we had probably somewhere in the very prefrontal cortex of our brain this really, really underdeveloped but extremely amazing software called Mindfulness. And that if we could just shut up
1: for two seconds
0: (laughs) and stop thinking up too much about everything all the time, that if we could just hearken, we could actually see (coughs) that (coughs) we could see this dharma, that he called it. The way things are, the way things happen. That this is, it's not just a, uh, life is not just a series of random events. (coughs) That there is some, uh, there's a middle way between things being determined and things being random and that we have the ability to intervene on the process. <clears throat> and what an amazing thing to discover. And also what an amazing thing to recognize and I'm not certain that you've all recognized it or you would not have probably come all the way out here. So at some point, probably many times, but at least I would argue for all of you, at least for one time, something got lit. Some internal intuitive wisdom got switched on and you saw things in a way that you hadn't before. Matt that, that you took the blue pill and went all the way down to the matrix. And now we're all seeing how far down does the rabbit hole go? And so he speaks very in two circumstances he speaks about this Dharma in a way that I think is very, very interesting. And one of of the sutras is translated as the visible dharma. And he says, this dharma that I have reached is, is clearly visible. He says, it's immediate, it's inviting, and it's uplifting. And it's actually literally right here, right now. But there tends to be obstacles and hindrances and things in the way that keep us from seeing that. And we've all had those moments. I joke about this often in my classes. Uh, Have you ever had the moment while you're meditating and you thought to yourself, I'm totally meditating right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is it. (laughs) Totally calm.
0: This is going to be like, any second now, It's going to be like total liberation for me. (laughs) And ironically, all that thinking, all it does is ruin the experience you were just having. (laughs) But we've had that. There's a way in which we can perceive experience um, that is very inviting and very uplifting and very immediate. And the Dharma is not like Star Wars. It's not you know a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away there were these people who practiced Buddhism and were happy. And maybe if we just try really hard and we sit with trees and and we strive that we'll someday get there. We're actually not trying to go anywhere. We're trying to actually stop that whole strategy of going somewhere, drop that and arrive here and see that everything you've been looking for has been staring back at you the whole time. But that's not, it's not so easy to do that, is it? There's all kinds of things that get in the way. In another sutta, a more famous sutta, uh, he talks about this noble quest. Sometimes it's called the decision to teach. And it's one of these places... Uh, in the Buddhist teachings that I really like because it's a, it's a, it's a sutta or a teaching that's not typical in, in the sense that it's not like all the other ones. Typically in the Buddhist teachings, the earliest teachings is that they're usually in dialogue. So the Buddha's sitting somewhere, somebody comes in to talk to him and asks him the question, and they sort of have this dialogue and it turns into like a teaching. But in this particular teaching called the Noble Quest, the Buddha is actually talking to himself inside of his own mind. And he has just realized this Dharma. He's just reached something. He's experienced something that he's never recognized or seen before. We could say that he's, he's awake at this point. He sees clearly the issue at hand. Um, and he says to himself, This Dharma I have reached, I consider to myself this Dharma that I have reached is quiet, it's excellent, it's fine. It's difficult to see, it's hard to awaken to, but it is there, and it is clearly visible. And he also says, in this sutta, as the one I mentioned before, is he says it's sensed or it's felt by the wise. That there are people who are able to see this. And when he says by the wise, he basically means us, people who actually try to see it. Who hearken and say, okay, look. let me give this a shot let me just shut up for 2 minutes put down my phone stop thinking too much about everything all the time and what he says eh hey, he go, come and take a look inside that you have all we have the same software program that the buddha had he was just a better computer programmer than we were
1: mm-hmm.
0: he also didn't have the Plethora of distractions that we have. So I feel like he had it a little easier back in ancient India. I mean, how much things were there really to do back then?
1: <laughs> no
0: movies, no restaurants, no Facebook. I mean, it's just like. So they had a. I think they had an advantage.
1: 300 dancing girls.
0: Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> perhaps it wasn't so easy back then. <laughs> And then he says something else that I've thought about for many years, and I, I've changed my perspective on it, and I think this is where he makes his call for compassion. He says that it's uh, difficult to see, it's hard to see this dharma that I have reached. And for years I thought that he meant that it was difficult to see and hard to see, like you had to be like really good at meditating to see it, like you had to have like really advanced skills in meditation so what I thought he meant was that you had, it was hard to see, meaning that you had to have all these skills to see. But lately I, I think that what he was trying to say is that it's hard to see in the sense that it's painful to see. That it's, um, it's hard to see because we come probably into contact with some truth about ourselves and life and the world uh, that are maybe not so pretty maybe kind of not so easy to look at. Uh, We come into, maybe see our minds in a way. We maybe see the greed and the hatred and the delusion and the ill will. We see qualities about ourselves that that are hard to see. Uh, They're difficult to awaken to. And again, I think this is exactly what he's talking about, that the practice, again, is constantly shining a light on all of the ways in which we are unliberators. And the hard thing is that actually when the practice starts to work, sometimes we don't like the reflection that's coming back. I'm like, well, man, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to see that. I don't want to know about that. I don't want to remember that. I want to distract myself from that. And then he says... People can't see this or they're unable to see this because they delight and revel in their place and that they're attached and that they're preoccupied, that we're so preoccupied with a place where we revel and we delight in the world in a place that we are either unable or unwilling to put that aside long enough to see what's really going on here. and this, this plays out in a very probably obvious way, is that, you know, I'm in my liberation practice. I really just, to be honest with you, I just want to be mostly okay in this world. Like liberation, freedom, awakening, cool. Maybe someday. If I could just mostly be okay in the world, like I would take that. That's good enough for me, personally. And again, I find myself constantly moving the goalposts of like, you know, this strategy you're probably painfully familiar with. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when that happens. I'm not happy right now. I'll be happy when and, and that we, we, we delight and that we revel and that we're attached to this idea that we're actually going to get somewhere. We're going to, to arrive into some kind of permanent experience that is going to make all the aggravation and disappointment go away. You could call that the American dream to some degree. <laughs> that's how I was conditioned. I grew up in a world that said, if you make the right choices and you go to the right school and you get the right job and you meet the right person and you live in the right neighborhood and you make the right amount of money, if you do all the, if you check off all the items, that you'll actually be rewarded in some sort of happily ever after permanent state of comfort and pleasure. (laughs) Have you heard this theory before? (laughs) This is a thing that exists. It's not just me, right? (laughs) I have yet to meet anybody who has achieved that goal? But I'm constantly confronted by people who are chasing that one down. And so, in our in our vain attempt to chase that one down, we're we're you know it's like the picture of the like the the guy who's on the horse and he's like a horse race jockey and he's he's got like a fishing pole with a carrot and it's like just hanging it's like this far in front of the horse's face. And of course, the the horse is going really really fast to get the carrot, but he realizes that. You know, he doesn't realize it's the problem. He's never going to get the carrot. But it's right there. It's just right there. And in, in, in being preoccupied and reveling in the right there, I miss out on what's right here. And that's, that's, not, a, that's not a huge movement. That's not miles and miles and miles. That's just uh, taking my attention off of that long enough and turning towards and being, well, what's here right now? You've been doing it all day. What's here right now is there's a body, breathing, hearing sounds, beautiful nature, good food. You actually don't have to really do anything. And that sounds good until you actually get to give it a try. You're <laughs> <laughs> like, oh man, I could sell this in like a Hallmark, not like a Hallmark card. Buy a C-Dose, 8,800 feet above sea level, solar powered, off the grid, no phone service, all the food, everything provided for you. You're like, oh, that's great. And you get here and you sit on your weird little cushion and you close your eyes. And what happens? Dissatisfaction. <laughs> Pain. Dukkha. Difficulty. And then the mind looks for the better place to be. Where's the better place to be? And then you know that can go on for. I think that can go on for an entire lifetime. I think many people spend their entire life looking for the better place to be. And so the the way he sets this up, the way the Buddha articulates this very clearly, and the way that he has attained his dharma, what he's seen is is actually just a gentle movement in one's attention. And also an emphasis on it's really really hard to give the place up. Because we cling and we attach, and um, we have a hard time with that. And even in the movement back, when we do look at what actually is here, sometimes it's painful. Painful memories, pain in the body. And so, how do we stay in that, or how do we even take refuge in that idea? And essentially the place is the unreliable refuge. It's the unreliable refuge. It cannot provide you with all of the wonderful things that it promises. And we find ourselves in these moments where we're kind of between those two. I find myself in that moment way more than I would like to admit. Way more than I would like to admit. And it's interesting, I had... I, if I were to be honest, I could say that I had the good fortune of being hit by an automobile whilst driving a motorcycle in Los Angeles. <sighs> Which doesn't sound like... It doesn't sound right, does it? I'm not
1: supposed to say that.
0: And I, and I sat, uh, you know, I was in this really bad accident, and I almost died. And I spent many weeks in the hospital. My, my pelvis was shattered. I couldn't, you know, I was, I was going to the bathroom on myself, and I couldn't move. And I was, just, I was just at the total mercy of the people in the hospital. And that was a tough place uh, to be. And one of the things that became um, very clear to me in a way that I had known for years but never really experienced was the reality that compassion for pain is really the most advanced skill that one can have. Because what got me through that, what allowed me to... And honestly, I will also say I didn't suffer so much during that time. I wasn't happy to be there, but I, I I was able to draw on some internal resource that I didn't really know that I even had, and that brings you know right into the basis of um, the w- what is basically the groundwork for Buddhist psychology is just you know this uh, pleasure pain thing. Big topics in your life aren't right? they? Pleasure and pain. Get the pleasure, get rid of the pain. Do that. (laughs) And that, of course, we're wired to um, avoid pain for obvious reasons. And usually in Buddhist practice they'll talk about how we hate pain and we're aversive to pain. But I think That's true, but I think if we even back that up just one more moment, one of the things that has been very clear to me is, it's not so much that I hate pain, it's that I'm scared of it. I definitely hate it too, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But truth is, I'm much more scared of it than I am hateful towards it. And what happens when we start to practice is we have to start to recognize, and one of the reasons why me and Cheryl wanted to emphasize compassion on this retreat is is two reasons. One, A, is the overemphasis on mindfulness in the cultural in general. Mindfulness is a very popular thing in this world, and I don't believe that mindfulness is going to solve all your problems. Um, And two, that both of us have recognized in our practice that the attitude in which we practice uh, has been much more beneficial to us than how well we're able to focus on the object of our meditation practice. So maybe I'll say that again. we talked about this today. The attitude in which we practice is far more important and far more liberating than whether or not we're able to concentrate on the object of our meditation well. So being good at paying attention to your breath But being kind to yourself as you learn how to pay attention to your breath, much more useful skill, I believe. Being compassionate as I learn how to sit in my pain body on the cushion, way more valuable than whether or not I'm present or able to keep my attention focused. Of course, both are important. But it was this arising of this, this compassion that really put me in this place of like having to come to terms with this idea of there being a place and how much of my life I've spent chasing that one. And you know what happens even in Dharma teaching? Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, when I become an empowered Dharma teacher and I get to teach retreats, then I'll be happy. <laughs> Guess what? I'm not that fucking happy. <laughs> You know? <laughs> so I'm like looking for the next goalpost. You know? I was like, well, probably after I do it for 10 years. I'm... It's just like, dude, will you just stop?
1: <laughs> it's
0: like, no. I'm 42. I was like, I got to stop per- like, si- sitting around thinking, what am I going to be when I grow up? <laughs> you know? It's like, how, many, how much of our time is wasted on that? I'm a lot happier than I used to be. But I'm also, again my, pra- again, my practice has continued to shine a light on all of the ways in which I'm unliberated. Right. And I'm never, never that excited to recognize a new one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I like new things. Shiny is my favorite color, but not in that regard. I'm like, oh, I, especially when you think that you've worked something through and you're like, oh, my God, I totally had no idea. <laughs> You like, I just got moved back like 15 years in one moment. It's because there's no mindfulness in practicing Dharma and coming into these retreats and coming into this present moment, dare I even say, because I don't believe such a thing exists, is that there's, it's not a clean slate. There's no clean slate moment. It's, it's, a, it's just the accumulation of conditions you you know try to come into the present moment and forget about your memories and your pains, your old wounds, your fears, all of the things that have gone wrong just because they happened yesterday 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago they still they still arise and they still kind of pester us until we've been able to hold them in the light of wisdom and compassion. And I find that what's been true for me is the unliberated parts of myself are the parts of myself that are screaming at me for some compassion and I have been unwilling to give it any. I have been Withholding love, withholding compassion from aspects of my experience. And they continue to rearise, and they continue to rearise until I'm able to do that movement. And so the wisdom and seeing it, the shining of the light on that is so valuable and important and necessary, but it's not. The end some game. And then we become into the reality of learning about all of the unsuccessful strategies that we have developed to avoid pain. All of the unsuccessful strategies that you have developed to avoid pain. And then when you're sitting in the log cabin in the middle of the woods and the pain arises, there's nowhere to go. (laughs) Face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And it's like, will you love me now? And you're like, "Eh." come back tomorrow. I mean, let me have one day.
1: Give me one day before you.
0: And this is really what we're looking to do. This 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 is the transformation, liberation practices is that we we're willing to sit in the fire of those experiences. All of the emotional, the physical, the psychological, the relational, all of these different pains and these old friends and old visitors that rearise, <coughs> they're unliberated. And you actually have the tools and the potential to liberate those. You get to decide. You get to to develop a new way, a new strategy, a way of holding that. And again, compassion is a big word. So again, so if we're gonna, so if we're sitting in this moment right now and going, okay, like, you followed my trail of breadcrumbs to this point. How does one do that? It's like, cool, so just compassion from now on, and we're good, like, that's it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that easy. And that the way that the, the Buddha teaches his practice is that oftentimes that it's in three stages, is that uh, we get knowledge, we have knowledge of the teachings, we have knowledge of these ideas, we hold these ideas in our cognitive function and go, okay, you, okay I'm adding up, doing the math on what Dave's saying, okay, I think that makes sense. And so there's, just, there's some knowledge that's required. And then we have to actually take that and do something with that. So that knowledge... Uh, arises in in what we would call right view, the first factor of the Eightfold Path. So if we're talking about the Eightfold Path as being the path that leads to the end of suffering, this is a good place to begin. And that is just, do you view compassion as something that is important to you? Plain and simple. Starting right there, just considering that idea. And then we start to that, what that does in the mind is that, in, in secular terms, they would say that that would be the opening of cognitive empathy, is that cognitively I, I hold a view and a perspective that empathy is important. And you know, if, you, if you're there, a lot of people aren't even there. Now, so that's a beautiful thing right there. It's like, okay, I have the knowledge, I understand, I'm, going, I'm willing to give it a try. And so that right view, just that little movement in the mind prompts us into, into the intention. The second factor of the Eightfold Path. What is my intention? What is, can I, if, if compassion is important to me, I probably need to include that in my intentions. And so, because we have the rare fortune of being able to really turn towards the inner life, is that in this attitude of practice, my intention is to sit here and to be aware and to cultivate awareness, but also to cultivate empathy and compassion and kindness and all of these qualities we talk about. And this is where we begin to In secular terms, where we would say, this is where we begin to develop emotional empathy. We're taking it out of the mind into the body. We're taking it out of the mind into the nervous system, into the heart. And we're saying, I am willing to try to hold my pain uh, with, with, um, maybe not even with anything, I'm just actually willing to hold it. I'm willing to put down my fear of it even though I am afraid of it. Because we all know it's going to happen again. You are going to get hurt again. (coughs) And so instead of sitting on the cushion engaging in all of the wonderful strategies and all the plans and all the ways in which you're going to avoid pain in the future, let that one go And say, yeah, I'm scared. I'm a, I'm a scared, vulnerable human being. I'm willing to actually do that. And that intention, also, that's what the Buddha calls karma. That where you're actually in that movement, in, in this behavior, I would say, this behavior, you're actually cultivating that quality of compassion in real time. You're doing something different. You're opening to that. You're feeling into that. You're saying, okay. You're checking it out. Can I even hold this pain? Can I be with this pain? Opening that. And I think also to uh, another. I love paradox because I feel uh, I have a lot of black and white thinking in my system, and I've very been very polarized in many ways. And pleasure and pain is a type of polarization. And then oftentimes many of us are polarized in certain ways. And the heart is also polarized, I think, in nature, in that the heart's strength lies in its weakness. What makes the heart so strong is its vulnerability and its ability to, to hold fear, to hold pain, to accept and to acknowledge that life has been hard. And that's okay. I'm not going to blame myself. I'm not going to blame others. I'm not going to get into that psychological strategy. I'm going to put that aside for now and and heal this feeling, this experience. <laughs> and now you thought paying attention to the breathless heart. i talking about something much different now. But again, it does take that focus of attention. It does take that concentration. It does take that breath awareness. It does take that movement away from our delight and reveling in our plays and our strategies to avoid fear long enough that we can access that experience. And the one thing about this particular moment, one of the things about it for me that has been so confusing is that it hurts. It's still unpleasant. Because I get the delusion that I'm like, okay, so look, if I have compassion for my pain, it will go away. Like, that's the deal I want to make. I'm like, okay, so I'll care about my pain, and then the pain will go away. Right? That's pretty fair. I'll do that. But that's not not the deal. Mm -hmm. The suffering goes away. I no longer suffer. I'm not trying to fix, control, and predict, and avoid. But it's still, ouch. And so I I oftentimes find that moments of 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 very visceral compassion uh, for me, and this is probably in ways in which that I am still unliberated, is unpleasant. Setting boundaries with people is unpleasant. Sticking up for myself is unpleasant. Feeling into acknowledging things like sadness and disappointment and shame is unpleasant. I do not like it so much. But it certainly is an improvement, and for me it's been a vast improvement, than constantly suffering about those things. thinking about them too much all the time and why they did it and who did it and whose fault is it and how am I going to get revenge and why is the world like this and the betrayal and the and just all of the ill will that accumulates. Because if I'm unable to do the compassion part, the empathy part, what happens in my mind is all this ill will gains momentum. And gains momentum. And at first at first glance I will say honestly that The ill will feels a little bit good. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Buddha calls it the honey-dipped arrow. It's like, mmm, yummy. Tastes good. And right on the other side of that drop of honey is an arrow. Ooh, that that, that wasn't so good, actually, after all. And so then we take these, and we'll talk more about this later, but I do want to include it is that we take this knowledge and this view and these ideas into our direct experience and we start to really practice with those. We start to cultivate those. We start to have more access to the difficulty without being so scared about it. And really this willingness to, to have a vulnerable human experience. And to really embrace, the hum- embrace our humanity. I believe that's exactly what the Buddha did. All he did was fully embrace his own humanity, and develop a system of training that allowed us to not suffer about the vulnerability that comes with that. That is a very attractive idea to me, and that doesn't sound um, esoteric or religious or uh, doesn't carry with it any baggage for me personally. I'm like, yeah, I I think I can do that one. I seem to have plenty of pain, so we can get started
1: it started right away
0: and then this fruition so the knowledge turns into fruition and when you start to do this you start to experience the fruition and the, fru- the fruition of these ideas uh, that's where the wisdom comes from and the wisdom simply gives us the strength and the willingness to just kind of repeat that process when we start to recognize oh this is difficult this is challenging but it's, it, it's, it's the better strategy. It, it's, the, it's what Ajahn Chah would say, that he would oftentimes say, that there's two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. I've got a PhD in the suffering that leads to more <laughs> suffering. But then there's this other thing. There's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And the more willing we are and the more able we are to come into the present moment and to turn towards these things and to not let the mind get caught up in these strategies of running and avoiding and trying to figure out where else you should have gone or might have gone. That that compassion arises. So we go from this cognitive understanding to this emotional understanding to really this compassionate way of being. And then compassion becomes an action, it becomes a behavior, it becomes a mode of operating. And I have found that mindfulness without compassion is very limited. (coughs) That when we look at the practice, we could say in a very basic way, in a very simple way, is that we ask the question of what is it that is arising in my experience? What is it that's arising right now? What's, what's true about this moment? That's the mindfulness portion. And you have to develop some de- degree of concentration. We have to give up the thinking. We, have to, we do have to do some practice and technique to get to there, but not so much, I don't think. What is it that's arising in my experience? And the second question is the a, is a question about compassion. And that is, how am I meeting or how am I holding what it is that's arising in my experience? Am I resisting it? Am I saying it shouldn't be like this? Am I scared of it? Am I angry at it? Do I have ill will towards it? Or am I able to meet what arises in my experience? And say, I see you. I see you. I know you. We can do this. And the, the, the thing about mindfulness that is so important because there's so much that's important about mindfulness, but it's not a finished product, is that one thing I've recognized is that the the arising is so hypnotizing. That whatever arises in my experience, I kind of, I get hypnotized by it. And that's where that we delight and we revel in that place. And we don't, we can't stay with the present moment long enough to see that what arises passes. And then we can ask the second question of, how am I... How am I with this? How am I holding this experience? And you could, essentially, I think you could spend a whole retreat with those two questions if some of the things I'm saying are confusing or don't make sense. (coughs) And that's how we transform the unliberated parts of ourselves. We shine the light on them and we say, what is it that's arising in my experience? We see that And we hold that in a different way. So I will leave you with this one more time. No longer can we continue to drift complacently through life, driven blindly by our hunger for sense pleasure and our fear of pain and by the pressure of prevailing social norms a deeper reality beckons us. We have heard the call of a more stable, more authentic happiness. And until we arrive at our destination, we cannot rest content. But it is just then and now that we find ourselves. So I encourage you to come back to that as much as you can. And... uh we have a period of walking. And I believe there's one more sit. Is that correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Nine o'clock. Nine o'clock.
0: So I offer these thoughts and ideas for your reflection. I hope that you find them useful. And please practice well. And i very uh, pleased and honored and really uh, so much appreciation for the hard work that you're doing. And, and I, I truly believe that it will pay off um, for you. So um, practice diligently and um, we'll see you very soon. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.